Hebrews chapter 11 and one verse, verse 30. Hebrews 11, 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. 11, 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we approach you, we know that this is your word. It is the living and abiding word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And thank you, Lord, for the promise that this word that is sent out will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. You, indeed, Lord, will produce life and also, Father, even judgment to those who refuse to believe, to repent, and obey these words. We pray, Father, that you will be glorified in Christ, and may the Lord Jesus Christ be exalted in all that we think of when we meditate on these words. For we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Now we've come to a part of this passage that is beyond Moses. Beyond Moses, because by this point in the nation of Israel's history, Moses has already died, and now Joshua is going to lead the people into the land of Canaan. They need to conquer the land of Canaan. And in order for this to be explained here, he says that they conquered the land of Canaan. They were able to go and have access to this land of Canaan, to the first and formidable city, the city of Jericho. It was a strong city. It had its warriors. It had its strength and its fortresses. It had its walls. It had its ability to withstand attacks. And now here we are shown how faith is manifested in the life of Joshua primarily, but also the people who followed him into conquest in the land of Canaan. Now, when we think about this passage and the walls of Jericho falling down, we have to recap and summarize what actually happened in Joshua chapter 6 when they conquered Jericho. What is the scenario? They are there at the boundary. Right there, they have crossed the Jordan River. So they have crossed a natural boundary in order to enter into the land of Canaan. Now Jericho is near that. Not too far away from Jerusalem in terms of miles. Not too far away. And now Jericho is a very strong city and it needs to be conquered. It is about midpoint and about where Jerusalem is. So what Joshua is going to do is to conquer Jericho and divide the land of Canaan. And he's going to conquer the north and he's going to conquer the south later. But right here, he's getting right into the middle of it to conquer Jericho. Now, when you think about it, Joshua is a warrior, he's a commander, and he's a prophet of God, he's a man of God, he's all of these things in one man. But think about what God is asking Joshua and the people to do. The people of Israel, they are weak in comparison to the kings of Canaan. In comparison to the kings of Canaan, they are weak and they are feeble. Yes, they have some weapons. Yes, they have 600,000 men of war, 20 years old and upwards. They have all those. They are weak in comparison to the Canaanites and even the, the people of Jericho and the army of Jericho, the king of Jericho. They are weak in comparison. So what God is asking them to do is a very, very frightening task if you lack faith. If you lack faith, it is a 
formidable and frightening task to undergo. To say the following. And what was it that we read from Joshua chapter 6? With the assurance of the presence of the Lord, the captain of the host of the Lord, which was Christ, Christ appeared in a pre-incarnate state to Joshua and assured him that the Lord's host would be with Joshua to conquer the Canaanites. And then once that assurance is there from the presence of Christ, Joshua in faith is told to have the priests blow um, ram's horns, uh, trumpets, to do it once and encircle the city once uh, in six days, once every day for six days. Then on the seventh day to encircle it seven times and then they're supposed to shout and then they're supposed to believe that the walls are going to fall down. The walls did fall down, miraculously, because God is a God who expects us to hear His Word and believe whatever His Word says. And that's what they did. They heard the Word of God. They had assurance that God was going to give them this victory. They believed it. They did what was necessary. And then it happened exactly as God said it would happen. That's what actually happened. Now, also notice that they did so for seven days. They persisted and did so for seven days. When armies, when foreign armies encircle a city, they besiege it. They lay siege to the city. They encircle the city in order to prevent any from, anyone from the outside to go on the inside and anyone from the inside to go on the outside. They keep the city all shut up so that nobody can move back and forth from in the city to outside the city or outside the city and into the city. And when they do that, they do it long enough to make the inhabitants of the city give up because then they won't have water supply. They won't have food supply. They won't have any other kinds of daily requirements that they need. And so when there is famine inside the city, then they say, okay, we give up. If the foreign army is wise enough and strong enough, and if they are patient enough, eventually that will happen. But how long does that usually happen? It doesn't happen after a day, or seven days, or one month. It happens after years, usually years. And then it happens. A couple of years, three years, a few years, that's how it happens. It doesn't happen within days. But that's what the people were told to believe. The people were told to believe that you're going to be able to conquer the city by besieging it for seven days, and suddenly God will cause the walls to fall down, and then you'll be able to cross over the walls. You're going to, by that miracle, you're going to demoralize the inhabitants of the city, and you're going to be able to defeat them. And that's what happened. They did it for seven days, the walls fell down, they conquered the city, as we read in Joshua 6. They were able to spare Rahab and her family because she had faith and God was merciful to her and her household because of faith. She believed, but the rest of the people didn't believe. Both man and woman, young and old, and all their animals, domestic animals that they had for their sustenance, they were all destroyed. All because... They did the will of God, and others did not do the will of God. Now, there are a couple of 
points I would like to emphasize from what we have just heard. The first is that we must believe the Word of God in faith. We must believe the Word of God no matter how crazy it sounds. We must obey the Word of God no matter how crazy, how wild it sounds to our ears initially. We must believe whatever the Bible says. Whatever the Bible says and expects, we must do so. Example, we might say, in, in our company, we might say, we all believe in the cross of Christ. We all believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We have heard this long enough throughout our life, and we'll all give uh, assurance or a confession that we all believe in the death of Christ for our forgiveness. But if you think about it, if you think about it, within Christianity and the cults of Christianity, within the various denominations within Christianity, and then the cults of Christianity, such as Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and so forth, within the various denominations and the cults, people do not actually believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he died as a substitute for my sins if I believe in him. They don't really believe that. They think it's incredulous. They think it's crazy. How is it that one man in history, they look at him as just a man, but just one man in history could die on the cross that his death, his physical death, even if he died as a martyr, how could his physical death redeem my soul from my own sins so that I live forever? Have we thought about that? There are many people who do think about that in those ways that one man's death 2,000 years ago, somehow, in some way, how is it possible for that death on the cross to actually pay the penalty for my sins forever and ever if I believe in his death? They think it's ridiculous. They think it is ridiculous. They cannot fathom that truth. They can't. And how do we know that they know it is ridiculous? They can't fathom it. Because they will say, yes, I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he died for me. But I have to do these good works to get to heaven. That's what Mormons say. They say repentance, faith, baptism, and obedience to all the laws and ordinances of the gospel, they say Obedience to all the laws and ordinances of the gospel. They say all of this and the, all of the laws of the gospel is innumerable. And they are terrified at the thought that they might not be saved because they're not obeying every single thing to get to heaven. So they give lip service to the death of Christ and add something to it. Mm. But within Christianity, there are many denominations, including Baptists, including Baptists, many denominations that say, believe in Jesus, but also do this and do that, and do this and do that, because it's faith in Jesus plus my obedience that I offer to God, not that God works through me by His Holy Spirit, but that I offer to God, and then God, I'm not so bad because I believe in Jesus, and I'm not so bad because I stay away from some of these major egregious sins, 
And so I will get to heaven. I will go to heaven. Because it can't be possible that believing only in Christ will get me to heaven. They think in their mind it's, it's impossible, it's incredulous, and it's ridiculous. I'm not a bad person, and I'm going to be doing whatever I can to add to what Jesus did. And some of this is ritual adding. They say, well, I partake of communion, the Lord's Supper, every week or every month or whenever it's offered. I do that so I should get to heaven. Or I have been baptized, either sprinkled as an infant or immersed as an adult. I've been baptized, so because I've been baptized, I believe Jesus died for me, and I did this, and because I did this, I should get to heaven. Because I got baptized, I should get to heaven. You see what I mean? That to the human mind, to the flesh, they, the flesh thinks it's crazy that we could get to heaven, go to heaven, be justified before God, have forgiveness of sins, merely and simply, exclusively, by trusting that Jesus died in my place, and all I need is Christ's righteousness. All I need is His perfection. All I need is Christ and Christ alone. But that's what the Bible teaches us, to have faith in Christ alone. And this is evident throughout this letter that we're, we're studying in the book of Hebrews. He's been telling us from the very first chapter that Christ is all we need. Christ is superior to the prophets. Christ is superior to angels. Christ is superior to Moses. Christ is superior to Aaron. Christ is superior to all the animal sacrifices. Christ is superior to all the previous things that were said and all the things that you could imagine. Christ is superior to all of it. He's been telling us that for 11 chapters, and he will continue to tell us that in the subsequent chapters. So if he's been saying Christ is superior, Christ is sufficient, Christ is all that we need, we ought to, even if it sounds crazy to us, we ought to put faith in Christ alone. And not only that, but preach it this way. And be ready. And be ready. Whether within Christianity, as I said, within Christian denominations, or to cultists who claim to be Christians, such as Mormons, or even when you witness to a Muslim, when you witness to a Hindu, when you witness to a Buddhist, or even to an atheist, the thing that they will despise and hate the most is the belief that God came in human flesh, in Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins if we believe in Him. They will absolutely despise that brief statement that I've just made. Absolutely. They'll think it's crazy. They'll think that you are crazy for telling them that. And they will trust in whatever their religion says. This is the way people are. But this is what we must not give up. We must not give up. We, whenever the Bible teaches us what is true, what is right, what is good, what is peaceful, what brings us reconciliation between us and God, and even to, between us uh, or between uh, one another. Whatever it says, we must believe what the Bible, the Word of God, the living and abiding Word of God, the Word of truth. Secondly, 
Another aspect of what we find here is it says that by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. After they had been encircled for seven days. Which means what? God did not tell them, this is what I will do for you, and sit at, then I want you to sit at home, sit at home, sit in a chair, twiddle your thumbs, and just wait, close your eyes and meditate for five minutes, for seven days, you know, for once a day for six days, and then seven times for 35 minutes on the seventh day, and then suddenly something's going to happen. He didn't do that. You see what I'm saying? We have a tendency to think that if we believe what God's going to do, then there is nothing that God expects of us. There is nothing God expects of us. And actually, we don't really believe it, if I may say. I think what really is happening is we might say, I trust God, and then not do anything, not because we really trust God, but we want to sound spiritual. And really what we don't want to do is obey. We don't want to do anything. And so we use a spiritual coding, a superficial coding, and say, well, I'm just going to trust God with that, and I'm not going to do anything about it. No. Here it says they had to encircle the city for seven days. We must do something. When God tells us to believe, He's not telling us to believe as though belief is dormant, as though belief is powerless, as though belief is impotent. That's not the way the Bible means it. When it says to believe, belief will manifest itself in obedience. They are bound up together. True faith shows in action. That's the way the Bible makes the connection. And it makes this connection throughout. This is another place where we find that there are plenty of examples in the book of Hebrews. Look, for example, after he has given us this example of by faith the walls of Jericho fell down, after they had been encircled for seven days, he is not implying whatsoever that we should sit still. Notice, Hebrews 12, 14. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace. That is a command. It's an imperative. It is ex some expectation that God has of us. Does He not want us to have faith? Of course He does. That's what He was saying throughout chapter 11. But right here in 12.14, He says, Pursue peace. We have to be diligently pursuing it. Not sitting and twiddling our thumbs and hoping peace will come about. But He says, Pursue peace. Pursue peace with all. Not only that, Pursue sanctification, holiness, growth, godliness. Pursue this sanctification. It's not to be an inactive kind of pursuit. There is no inactive pursuit. By definition, a pursuit is active. And what is included in that? Our holiness, our sanctification, our godliness must be pursued. It cannot be 
something that we expect to happen occasionally or by accident or willy-nilly. That's not the way it happens. It happens because we are striving, we are pursuing it. Just like a soldier trains himself, just like an athlete trains himself, we also must train ourselves in sanctification. Chapter 13. Chapter 13. What else does he tell us to pursue in faith? Chapter 13, verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. So love the brethren. He's saying let it continue. And this form of, of expression is also a commandment. He's not saying that this is optional. He's saying let it happen. Let it happen means it's an imperative. It better happen. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Show hospitality to strangers. Do not neglect to do so. Do not neglect. That sounds like a ten, one of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall, you shall, do not. There's positive commandments and then there are negative commandments. Pursue certain things, but then avoid other things. And here, avoid this um, showing hospitality to strangers. In fact, do the opposite, he's saying. Show them hospitality. Verse 3, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. There, remember the prisoners. And here, the prisoners, I don't think he means the average criminal, although there is a place for that kind of ministry. I think he, in this passage, the prisoners are the Christian prisoners who are persecuted and thrown into prison for their faith. Because they refuse to practice the sins of the culture or the crimes of the culture, or even the crimes that the government wants you to commit. Therefore, they are thrown into prison. So, when he says, remember them, do you think he means sit at home and just pray for them? No. He means go and visit them. They might need food. They might need drink. In the United States, we don't understand prisons and the, the plight of criminals, in, especially an innocent criminal. We don't understand their plight. But think of it in other countries. In other countries, they're not always feeding them with luxurious food as is fed to prisoners here in our country. The facilities, exercise facilities, television screens, and all the kinds of things that they enjoy here, that's not what goes on typically in other nations and not even throughout history. Who has to visit the prisoner? The relatives and the friends of the prisoner they have to visit them regularly to give them food, to give them drink, to give them clothing, to give them whatever they need to help them out and to encourage them by their words. Verse 4, 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Another example of what we need to do. He says, hold marriage in honor. Among all of us, hold it in honor. Don't defile the marriage bed. Defilement of the marriage bed means don't practice fornication, which is sexual immorality typically that's outside of marriage. Any kind, if, if it's not between husband and wife, then whatever sex that occurs is in the Bible considered fornication. Whether that's premarital or whether that is in some other way. 
such as homosexuality, man, man having sex with an animal, or a, a, an adult with a child, or anything like that, all of that is detestable and gross in the sight of God and should be avoided. Because God will judge fornicators and adulterers when those are married. When they are married and they have it with someone else outside of marriage, God will judge, he says. Verse 5, let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what shall man do to me? Isn't that also telling us to do something? Let our character be free from the love of money, and trust that God will never leave us or forsake us. There too. It's not just saying, I believe God's going to provide, but it is having a character that's not manifested in the love of money. And a few more. Look at verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. The result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Those who led you who spoke the word of God to you. Here as well, we have an example of the leaders who were preaching and teaching the word of God, and they were obeying the word of God. That's conduct, right? Conduct, behavior. They didn't just sit at home and twiddle their thumbs. They didn't just meditate with their eyes closed, sit in yoga style or Indian style, and say, okay, something's going to happen. I'm just going to wait for it to happen. No, it says they, the result of their conduct imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. So don't say this is a new teaching. No, Christ expected this in every generation. Faith in Him and obedience in Him. And also, verse 9, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. Verse 9, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. Well, how can you know that a teaching is various or strange? How can you know that the teaching that you hear or the teaching that you read how can you know whether it is strange or not? By reading the Bible. If you read the Bible, then you can know the standard. The Bible is the standard. The Bible is the rule. The Bible is the perfect, perfectly produced note of currency. And so if you understand the Bible, then you will be able to understand the strange teachings, the counterfeits, the false teachings that come up our way. And they come up every day. They come up every day. Sometimes they come up in our own head. And sometimes in our family, and sometimes with our friends, our co-workers, our schoolmates. They come up all the time. And these days you can find it amply on the internet. It's there all the time. They, the world bombards us with false teachings. The only way to be able to discern it all, to avoid it, does he not say? Do not be carried away. Don't let it happen to you. Don't let somebody carry you away 
into falsehood, into strange teachings. Which means you need to actively be reading the Bible, understanding the Bible, making sense of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the very end of the Bible throughout your whole life. If you don't make sense of the Bible, how can you have any awareness, any discernment, any ability to distinguish between that which is strange and that which is sound teaching? You have to be in the Bible. That is the only way. And this is the way, he says, we will be strengthened by grace. We will have our heart strengthened by grace in the Bible. And then he also mentions in verse 9, and not by foods. And not by foods. Now, in this context, he may have primarily in mind the Jewish, uh, the Jewish dietary laws. However, you will notice that not only here, but in other places in Scripture, there is a propensity, and even in our culture, there is a propensity to make food issues matters of life and death. Spiritually speaking, you better not drink too much water. You better not drink, uh, you're not drinking enough water. You don't drink milk. Don't drink house milk. No, no, don't eat wheat. It's not good for you. Don't eat peanuts. It's not good for you. I'm not talking about allergies. I'm talking about what is good and what's not good. Coconut oil is definitely, you better not use coconut oil. Don't pop your popcorn in coconut oil. It's going to destroy you. You're going to get cancer. Don't do that. Don't, you see what I'm saying? People do these things with food all the time. What's good for you, what's bad for you, when actually in the Bible, whatever the Bible says about food, that is what goes. That's what we must do. Instead of letting the fads and the ads of the day control our thinking, the fads and the ads of today control our mind. And they tell us, eating yogurt is good for you. No, it's not good for you. Eating sour cream is good for you. No, it's not good for you. We go on and on about all kinds of foods. This is what people say. What we must do is think biblically about this issue. Think biblically. That is the key. So, does the Bible expect us to match faith with our actions? The answer is yes. If we have true faith, it will manifest itself in our actions. So, will we, will we begin to trust God no matter what He says? If the Word of God tells us something is true, will we believe it? When it is teaching us about the bodily resurrection of Christ, we should never have the thought that Jesus did not rise from the dead in a physical body. When the Bible says that Christ will return, we should never have the thought that there is no return of Christ. When the Bible says there is a day of judgment, we should never say, oh no, that's ridiculous. Why would there be a day of judgment? There's no accountability. No, we should never say that. When the Bible teaches that there is hell, we should not say, no way. God is too loving to send anybody to hell. He's too loving to send anybody to, to hell forever. Maybe if there's hell, maybe it might last a day or a year or something, but it's not going to last forever. You, people concoct false teachings based on things they think are better in their own eyes than in the eyes of the Holy Spirit of God who gave us the Word of God. Let's not do that. On theology, 
And let's not also do that on morality. On morality, we have a tendency to think that if God expects me to do this, then it's not going to be good for me. It's not going to work out for me. Let's say it's an addiction. Let's say it's an addiction. You spend too, something that might be good, but you spend too much time doing it. Something that you should only do for five minutes or 30 minutes, you let it go on for two hours, for three hours, for five hours, all day long, or days, you let that happen. Then in that case, what you are thinking is that that thing is better for me than what God says about my need for self-control. That activity is better for me than what God says about my self-control. That's what we're doing. Whether it's something we consume, something we watch, something we hear, whatever it might be, whatever it might be, what we're doing in the moral or ethical aspect is telling ourselves that what God says about that subject is crazy. It's unrealistic. It's ridiculous. So I'm not going to listen to God. I'm going to do whatever I want. And then in terms of actions. In terms of actions. We must refuse to think like the world and also to put a false coding, a false spiritual coding on our, our faith. If we say we believe, then it must manifest itself in our actions. It must manifest itself in our actions. If we say we believe, we must live accordingly. Whatever the Bible teaches us is that way. And an example I might use to close on this matter is, doesn't the Bible, we hear in the world and in the church, we hear, doesn't the Bible teach us to love one another? So love is what we must do. We love, 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 love. Love, love, love. That's what they tell us. Love, grace, mercy, that's what you must do. Don't judge. The Bible says do not judge, right? So the world and superficial Christians are preaching to us, telling us, do not judge, and the Bible teaches you to love. But the next question is, how are we to love? How are we to love? What they want is love without the confrontation of sin. So, they don't want somebody to say, when a man is with a man, that is a sin. When a mother kills or butchers her baby, going to the abortion clinic and butchers her baby there, that that is love, or because we're letting the woman do whatever she wants, and so on. Or, if it is in terms of the, the things that go on in the culture, or even, let's say, the Lord's Day, things that go on in the culture, why does the Bible in Revelation 1.10 call today the Lord's Day? Did it call it the Lord's Day because it's our day? No, it called it the Lord's Day because it's the day to focus on the Lord. Even if the world doesn't do so, we must do so. We must obey according to our faith. Dedicate this day to the things of God and not the things of the world. Even if some of the things that are done on the other six days are not bad in and of themselves, dedicate this day to the things of God. Let us, therefore, as the people did, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had encircled it for seven days. May our faith be manifested 
in believing the Word of God and obeying the Word of God without any excuses. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.